0: We're in a series that we started uh, last week that's entitled Dare to be Different. We're talking about reclaiming the things that should make us stand apart from the world. And as John alluded to earlier, we talked about last week, first of all, daring to be different from your past, daring to live today and plan tomorrow in a a way that reflects a real difference from who we have been in the past and allowing ourselves to to envision what God wants to make of our lives. And so uh, today we're going to talk about daring to have a different kind of faith. And when I say that, I'm not just talking about having a different kind of faith from the Muslims or the Buddhists or the Hindus of the world. We're talking about having a different kind of faith even when you live in the Bible belt. Having a different kind of faith. You know, We live in a time and place where it's not anything extraordinary to say that you're a person of faith. In fact, in spite of how we see the secularization of our culture taking place, we still live in a time and place here in the Deep South where you're more the oddball if you don't have faith. Wouldn't you agree with that? I mean, most of the people who live around us certainly declare that they have faith. What we need is a different kind of faith. We need a different kind of faith from a lot of people. We we live in a time today where if you just listen to the faith that's being preached particularly in the American church and I listen I love our country and I love the church I am crazy about both I'm not again either one but I also love both enough that I'm willing to stand up for what's right in them and to say we need to correct what's wrong and what's broken in either one and there are some things that need to be dealt with in the American church some things that aren't healthy that aren't right. and right at the heart Of That is some of what I want to talk about today, and that is that in much of the American church today, the very popular message has become one that God wants to reward all people of real faith with constant health, constant wealth, constant wisdom and favor. You've heard this message, haven't you? If you haven't, you haven't been listening to anybody on TV because this one plays all the time on television. It's a very simple and very appealing message that the way God consistently rewards faith is he keeps you healthy. Or if you get sick, bam, he's going to give you exactly what you need for a miraculous healing because you shouldn't ever walk in sickness if you're a person of faith. And he keeps you from having financial difficulty or if you have a difficulty. It's only just long enough for Him to come in and send you a check in the mail or make some kind of miraculous provision so that you've always got all that you need because you're always supposed to have an abundance. And your marriage is going to be strong and rich. You're not going to have the problems that the rest of the world has. And your kids are going to be healthy and they're going to have good teeth and good grades because that's just how the favor of God comes on a life. It's a very popular message and it's making some people... Fabulously wealthy. It's a modern message, by the way. This has not been the historic message of the church. We know who the father of this modern American movement is. He is now worth seven hundred and sixty million dollars. He professes himself to be a billionaire, but he's estimated to be worth three quarters of a billion dollars. His name is Kenneth Copeland, and he's got lots of disciples. He's preached a lot of good messages, but he is the father of this movement that says, if you have faith, this is what God's going to do for you. And there's an attempt to model that life. Look how blessed I am because I have faith. It's a message that sounds great until it's your day to experience trials. It's a message that will just constantly lift you up until it's your day to have major problems with your kids. They start getting in trouble. They start messing around with their boyfriend or girlfriend and wind up pregnant as a teenager. They start messing with drugs. They start messing with booze. Your spouse starts messing around. You lose your job. You get in financial trouble. Or sickness hits. Somebody in your immediate circle, somebody in your immediate family becomes critically ill. And suddenly... You're confronted with a situation that doesn't just evaporate the moment you pray for it. You start to press in and you call on this faith that you've heard about. You're believing God for a miracle and watching for a breakthrough, watching for the check in the mail, watching for instant relief, total healing, pain to go away, anxiety to go away, depression to be lifted. And it's still there. Your kids are still acting out. You still got problems in your marriage, or you didn't suddenly get a job, or you didn't get a check in the mail. You don't suddenly feel well. You, your loved one is still sick. What do you do then? You start asking questions what you do. You start asking questions like, what's wrong in this equation? Is God mad? Have I messed up somewhere and I'm now being punished? Is this the result of some past sin that has finally caught up with me and God's been holding it against me and now He's going to make me pay for that? Am I somehow on the outs with God and He just doesn't love me? What's the root of this? What's the cause of my suffering? And if it lasts long enough and it's bad enough, a lot of times we'll hit a real crisis of faith where we start wondering whether we can trust God at all. We start wondering, how could a good God, how could a loving God who's in control let something like this happen to me or the people that I love? Is he even real? Is any of the stuff that I've ever been taught real? These guys that were telling me what faith is supposed to look like, can I trust anything that they say? And you land at a scary place. You get to a place where you don't know what to hold on to. Well... Facing that brings us to the realization, if we're going to get through those kinds of times, we're going to need a different kind of faith. A different kind of faith from the rest of the world that says, it'll just always be joy, 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 your best life now, if you'll follow Jesus. Because the experiences of life don't line up with that message, do they? Okay, this is the audience participation time. In, in, no, thank you. Just wanted you to know, you, you can talk back in this room. This is in school classroom. No, in your life and in mine, it doesn't work that way, does it? It's not always just health, wealth, and prosperity. It's not always gloom and doom. You get some of both in life. And we need a faith that's going to get us through both seasons. We need a faith that's going to serve us not just when everything's great and everybody's healthy and there's plenty of money in the bank. We need a faith that's going to get us through the hard times and that's going to take into account what those seasons are all about and help us to understand them and grow through them, not just wind up going, where is God? How could a loving God do this? We need a different kind of faith. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. For at least the remainder of this month and through this series, we're just going to stay camped in First Peter. If you're looking for a fresh place to go in your quiet time, maybe you want to go to First Peter and just camp there for a bit. I used to not be all that crazy about Peter's letters, and I realized part of that is, in an odd way, I just never was that crazy about Peter. I mean, I could identify with him, but sort of in the bad ways. Because, if we're honest, the Peter that we find in the Gospels... Is there really somebody that we would trust? Is he? I mean, he's kind of like a kind of cocky goofball. I, I know I'm going to face Peter in heaven, you know, having said that. But he, he's, he's this incredible guy, and Jesus is crazy about him, which is like the biggest endorsement you can get. And yet when you just read the Gospels, there's a part of you that's going, why did Jesus like this guy so much? He's so cocky, he's so confident, and yet he doesn't know what he's saying or doing half the time. He's constantly getting himself in trouble. At one point, Jesus just finally looks at him and goes, Get behind me, Satan. Now, that's a pretty big uh, put-down. That's a pretty big wake-up call when Jesus looks at you and calls you Satan. This is Peter. Peter who's tripping over himself. Half the time, you know, he, he always has something to say. He just isn't sure what he's saying. That's Peter the early version, the first three and a half years of his life of faith. But by the time he writes the, the letters that we have in the scripture, it's about 35 years further down the line. And I'll just tell you, life has knocked the rough edges off of Peter by this time. He is a changed, transformed man by the time he writes what we read in First and Second Peter. Now, I know you didn't come for a history lesson, and I'm not going to give you a lengthy one, but it means so much more when we read different parts of the Scripture and we know something about the setting into which they were written. So I want to take a couple of minutes and set the stage for you as to what's going on when Peter writes this first epistle, because you'll read it differently if you just get this. 1 Peter is written somewhere in the mid-60s. And you you remember that during this time, Rome is in control of the central part of the world. And... Everybody that Peter's writing to is under the control of of Rome. Nero is the emperor. He's the ruler of the empire. And he is a man who is wicked beyond words. Probably the closest uh, leader right now that we could compare him to would maybe be Kim Jong-un. Somebody who's that ruthless. He's a man who was so cruel that he killed his own mother. He had his first wife killed and we're pretty sure he had his second wife killed. It's a pretty heartless man. He had an insatiable desire to build, but building costs money, and he had a major problem. The Roman Senate would not approve the funds for him to take on these great building projects that he wanted to do. And he just couldn't handle that. And so, as his way of taking control of the situation, he burned the city of Rome in July of 64 AD. It burned out of control for six days and nights... People fought to try and get the fires under control. Finally, after about six days, they began to get it under control. And I guess the wind or something picked up because then it just got out of control again. And for another three days and nights, a total of nine days, Rome burned pretty much from end to end. Well, this was his way of burning everything down in anger. And now the Senate's going to have to approve the money and I'll get to build things the way that I want to build them. But it backfired on him. The people found out that he was the one who had caused the fire. And so they were furious at him. They were for the whole thing. And so he needed an out. He needed a scapegoat. And he found one. So he told everyone around him that the people who really caused the fire were this strange little religious sect, this sort of new religious movement. They were known as followers of the way or followers of Christ, or the Christ ones. They're the ones who set the fire. They're the ones who destroyed the city. And Nero said to the people, and I will make them pay. it was all a lie, but boy did he make them pay. He would take them and do things like wrapping them in animal skins and putting them in cages and then turning wild, hungry dogs loose on them to devour them alive. And he'd sit and sip wine as he watched this happen. This was like prime time entertainment for him. He would boil them in oil. He would take live Christians and dip them again and again in hot wax. And then he would have them tied to trees. And while they were still alive, he would set them on fire at night at his parties. And use them to light the night sky as he burned them to death. Now these weren't superheroes who somehow... Dodged the pain. These were ordinary men and women with children and families like you and me who just wanted to live their lives in simplicity and faith and just wanted to be with their families. And he tortured them and murdered them. And into that setting, in that kind of horrible, unspeakable situation that few people today could begin to relate to, A level of pain that's very hard for us to grasp. It's into that that Peter speaks about trials and suffering. And so we pick up in the first verse of the first chapter where Peter says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, all over. Those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit... For obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. You know, so many times we'll read opening words like that and go, yeah, yeah, okay, all that's all the flowery language. Get on with what you have to say. But I'll tell you, if you're going through what these people are going through, you need to hear those words with authority. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. When you're going through your time of trial your body is racked with pain, when your loved one is dying of cancer, when there's not enough money in the bank, when your career has gone down the drain and you're so stressed out, when you're fighting depression and anxiety and migraines, when you're living in that kind of hellish situation, you need God's grace and peace and abundance in your life and all this wonderful talk about it. you just name it and claim it that rings hollow you need real grace and peace and abundance and that only comes from one source and that doesn't come from somebody standing on a platform in a spotlight that only comes from god And he goes on to say, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There is hope. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. And then he gives the good news. You who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed In the last time. Now that's the part that the name it and claim it guys can preach with great power. See, if you belong to God and you've got this faith, you're shielded. You're shielded from the pains of life. You're shielded from all the difficulties the world goes through. That's why you should trust Jesus so that you'll be shielded, right? Don't we? We want the protection of God. I do. Sign me up. I want that version of LifeLock. The the Jesus-sponsored LifeLock. But then he gives the other half of the story in verse 6. In this, you greatly rejoice. You better know we do. If you protect me, I'll celebrate that. Though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. (laughs) Well, I reckon so. If you're the teenager who watched your mom and dad be boiled to death in oil, I'd say you've been through a little trial. If you're the wife who watched your husband and your son and your daughter be dipped in wax and and tied to a tree and burned to death while other people partied, I'd say you've been through a little trial. He said, yeah, in spite of the protection that you receive, you also go through some times of real trial and pain. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, That faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and you're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now he said a mouthful in these opening nine verses and I'm not going to begin to have time to cover all of that. I want to home in on a couple of ideas that are really important for us today, especially if you're going through a trial. Let me just say, Peter's letter is written for just three groups of people. So I want to see if if this applies to you. This is only written for people who have either been through a really hard season or they are currently in a real painful and hard season or they've got one looming before them. Those are the only people who apply. So anybody in the room that this might be for you? About three of us. So, no, no, it applies for all of us. This this letter's for everybody. Because you've either been through a, a storm or you're in one. Or there's one on the horizon for you. We're, we're all going to go through them. It's interesting that when Peter starts his letter, he's writing to Christians. And he addresses them in verse 1 as foreigners. Now, depending on which translation you have, that that Greek word... Uh, Parapidemois, there's a 50 cent word you'll use in conversation a lot this week, never. It it gets translated a lot of different ways. It can mean exiles, sojourners, aliens, strangers, foreigners, or refugees. Right at the outset, we're confronted with how much the prosperity gospel of the American church today does not line up with the scriptures. I mean, think about the world that we know today. And if there's one group of people that we probably pity the most today in all the world, in the last couple of years, either at the top or near the top of the list, would have to be the Syrian refugees, wouldn't it? I mean, I don't care what your position is on immigration or any of those kinds of issues. Lay that aside if you just look at the predicament of these poor people. They live in a country that they were... Didn't, you know, decide to be born into. They are born into a land that is just torn apart by. War and corruption and terrorism. And if it's not Al-Qaeda, it's the Taliban. If it's not the Taliban, it's ISIS. If it's not ISIS, it's the Russians. I mean, it's just awful what they live in. And their homeland is so violent, so dangerous and destructive that people who love that land, they love their home as much as we love the South. And in desperation just to try and protect their children, they have fled. Many of them have walked across Europe. We're not talking about walking across the the county. They've walked across a continent trying to just find some place that they can call home. And I'm not trying to make some kind of political appeal to say swing wide the doors and bring everybody to America. That's not the point at all. I'm just saying, can you feel the pain of these people? All they want is just a place to be able to raise their children in safety and they have no home. And they don't even really have the hope of a home. We call them exiles. Refugees. That's how Peter addresses Christians. He says, you know what? In this world, you're exiles. You're the refugees of this world. Whoa, whoa. Wait a minute, Peter. I thought if we just had faith, we could rule this world. We could have this world by the tail. We could be gazillionaires. We could have bigger houses and finer cars. We could all live with great health and great kids and have wonderful marriages. That's, we're supposed to be on top of this world. Peter said, no, in this world, you're like refugees. Because you don't fit in this world. You weren't made for this world. You were made for another kingdom. By the way, it's a kingdom you get to live in forever. And in the little time that we're in this world, you're like sojourners. You're like foreigners. doesn't mean every minute of your existence is going to be miserable, but it's going to have some challenges. Do you begin to appreciate how much this modern American version of the gospel is hogwash compared to the truth of life and of the scriptures? He says, I'm writing to Christians all over. It doesn't really matter what country that you live in. In every country on planet Earth in this lifetime, our experience is going to be a lot like an alien, a foreigner, a refugee. It's going to have some pains. It's going to have some real troubles and setbacks that aren't just going to go away every time you pray. But he says a lot more than that. He really shocks us in verses six and six and seven, when he says this, "So truly be glad, really? I wasn't glad when I watched Mom be fed to hungry dogs. I wasn't too thrilled when I watched my dad be dipped in wax and burned on a tree. So truly be glad. Why? Because there's wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. You see, we've got to pass through trials. One, because we live in a world where there's evil. There's sin and there's evil. But it's also necessary for us to pass through trials in order to have a mature faith. In order to find out if we even have a genuine faith. You know, I've really chewed on that thought this week. Trials are the thing that prove to you and the rest of the world that you do have a genuine faith. What's the implication of that statement? One implication is that there's a lot of faith that's not genuine. Amen? Would you agree with that? If this helps us to sort out what genuine faith is, the implication is there's a lot of false faith in the world. And I've just got to tell you, one of my greatest fears, this has haunted me for years, is that, people that I love, people that I am friends with, people that I'm called to shepherd as a pastor, that some have a false faith and that they would never come to recognize it, And that they'd go through life just holding on to faith, only to discover at the end that it was false faith. And so for a couple of minutes, I just want to explore what some of those false faiths look like. I've mentioned three in your outline that I think are worth us considering for a minute. The first one is inherited faith. Now, I want to be really clear. Inherited faith can be, there's a version of inherited faith that can be a huge blessing. When you had parents and grandparents who were people of deep faith, and you truly embraced that faith, and you made it your own, and you didn't just piggyback off of them, but you truly came to know and love and trust the Jesus that they know and love and trust. Paul's protege, Timothy, was like that. He said, Timothy, the faith that your mother possessed and that your grandmother possessed, it now lives in you. Now, that's a really healthy version of inherited faith. But there is a false faith that we could also call inherited faith. And it looks really different. It's the kind where we essentially go, well, you know, mom and dad, I mean, they were, they called themselves Christian. Mama was a Methodist and daddy was a a Baptist. And my grandparents went to church and... I mean, I guess I'm a Christian too. I mean, I don't want to go against them. I don't want to offend them. So if I get married one day, I guess it'll be in a Christian church. If I have to bury my parents one day, I guess I want a Christian pastor doing that. I mean, I'm not a Muslim. I'm not a Buddhist. So I guess I'm a Christian. We just sort of inherited enough to the point that we don't want to identify with anything else. We live in the Bible Belt. So yeah, I guess that's what I am. But the truth of the matter is, we never internalize it to the point that we become people of faith. We just sort of don't go against it. So we we sort of say, just to not rub anybody the wrong way, yeah, I'm a Christian. But usually when you've got inherited faith, when you hit about 18 or 20 or 21, you start asking questions and wondering, at least to yourself, do I really believe this stuff? The Bible's an old book. Do I really need to get together with all these stuffy old people on Sunday morning? Do I really need this? And usually if all you've got is inherited faith, by the time you hit college age, you've got better things to do. And you turn in other directions. That's inherited faith. There's a second kind of faith that we could just sort of call shallow faith. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 13. You remember he told the story of the farmer sowing seeds? He said a farmer went out to sow seeds, and some of the seeds that he threw out, they fell on the path, a hardened path, and the birds came in and scooped them up, and no good came of that. But he said some of those seeds fell on the rocky soil, and they sprung up really quickly, and it looked like they were going to be fine, but then the sun came out and hit them, and they just immediately wilted and died because... It was just a little bit of dirt on top of the rocks, and they had no root. They were so shallow that they died. That's a pretty good description of shallow faith. These are people who, at some point or points along the way, they've been excited about faith. They've heard about Jesus and the Christian life and all that we can have. In We've had a little woo-woo Holy Ghost camp moment, you know. We were excited about Jesus, excited about church for a little while. But then, life got busy, or life got difficult, or we got distracted. And the next thing you know, we just don't really have time for that. We meant to, we had good intentions, and we remember those experiences, and it's still real dear to our hearts, but we're just sort of too busy with other things. Life just got a little too hot, too hard, too busy. All we had was a shallow faith that did not see us through. You see, that's false faith. I've really wrestled with whether to say this straight today, but I'm just going to say it. It grieves me to know that there are some among us, if we're a typical church, that you're not going to be here in a year or in two years unless something changes Because right now all you have is a shallow faith. And the sun's going to come out and it's going to get hot and life's going to get hard. And you're going to get distracted and hard pressed. And if all you have is a shallow faith, you won't be around in a year or two. At any point in time, that's the case. That's just what church attracts. Some people with a deep faith, some people with a shallow faith. And I'm not trying to put you down for it. I just want you to understand, you can do something about it. Now, this isn't a perfect correlation, but I will tell you this, and I'm not trying to hurt anybody's feelings. I just care enough. I'm going to say it straight. The people who are at most risk today are those who do not have vital connections to other Christians. And one of the easiest measures of that is you're not connected to a small group. You don't have anybody that you're in a discipling relationship with. This is great. I love Sunday mornings together, I love worship time together, I love being with you, I love being in God's word. But understand, you can barely claim to belong to the church if this is your only connection to the church. Because absolutely the truest, purest expression of the church happens in small group. I mean, Come on, let's just get real. You can come here every Sunday morning and be a total phony. You can live any way you want to all week long and mask it beautifully on Sunday morning. You know that's a fact. You can live with any manner of garbage in your life and cover it up on Sunday morning and come to get your spiritual buzz and leave feeling better about yourself coming on Sunday morning. It's in small group. It's in a discipleship relationship that people get to know you and you get to know them and you start wrestling with the real issues of life. And when the sun comes out and it gets hot and life gets hard and you're in pain, other people are there to hang on to you. And help you not give up and run away. And when you try to, they chase you down and say, I love you too much to let you get away. And for some of us this morning, the word that we need to hear is, you better step up before the devil heats it up. You better get connected before the devil takes you down because he's coming. And don't think for a minute, I'll just be strong and overcome it. You're not strong enough in your own strength to overcome what the devil will bring against your life. You you were designed to live in community. And apart from that, you're going to hit the ground hard on your face. You need that connection. I need it. That's why I live in it all the time. I can tell you where I'll be tomorrow morning, bright and early. I'll be meeting with guys that I meet every Monday morning because I need them in my life. Hanging on to me, speaking truth to me, holding me accountable. Come Wednesday night, I'm going to be with my small group family. I need that and you need that. I have a faith that's real, but I have a faith that needs to be fed every week. And and I feed off of those connections to other people. And you do the same. And then there's a third kind of false faith that's worth... Pausing to consider. And we could just call that conditional faith. It's the easiest one to understand. It's the faith that says, I love Jesus as long as he keeps the blessings flowing. As long as I live with favor and health and my marriage is good and my kids are great and I've got plenty of money in the bank. I love Jesus. Yes, I do. I love Jesus. How about you? (laughs) Y'all know that kind of faith. But when it doesn't look like that. When hard times come and I lose my job, my mate's unfaithful to me, I start going, well, how could a loving God ever let those kind of things happen to me? I don't think I'm going to that church anymore. If Jesus is real, he's not good or he doesn't love me. That's conditional faith. That's not real faith. Now, the good news is this. There is a faith that is solid and real. Real. And it's not just holding on to what your mom and daddy taught you. It's personal trust in the personal God who has revealed himself in the person of Christ. It is a personal relationship. I I know that I have saving faith. I remember when I came into a saving relationship with Jesus when I was seven years old. I remember that. But you know what? I don't have any confidence today because of what happened when I was seven years old. You know how I know that I have saving faith? Because today I'm a follower of Jesus. I screw up frequently. If you don't believe me, ask my wife. I do. But I don't lose faith because I fouled up. I know that I have faith because today I am pursuing a relationship that's real today. The beautiful thing is that Peter gives us a picture Of real faith. It's not vague and it's not second hand. And he gives us a picture of the balance of that faith in verses 5 and 6. He says, those of you who through this faith that is real are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation. And as I said, man, we love that part. I want the shield. God put me in the holy bubble. I, I want that. The devil can't get me. Evil can't get to me. And then he follows that idea up with the fact, but you live in this time where for a little while you have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. We live with both. If we belong to God, we always live under the protection of God. But can we be really clear about this? Even under the protection of God, you will go through painful trials. If you don't think so, go back and reread the opening two chapters of Job. Y'all remember that old story? Oh yeah, there's a fun wake-up call. You probably didn't spend a lot of time in your quiet time this week in Job. That's a heavy book. Can I just remind you of? Now, it's bizarre, but we need to know the truth of the opening and closing chapters of Job. Job was a godly man. If if ever anybody had real faith, Job had faith. He had real faith in the one true God. But the day came that God and Satan are having a conversation. That's hard for us to picture, but they are talking to each other, and God's the one who says, Have you considered my servant Job? He's rubbing the devil's nose in it, by the way. They don't like one another, even a little bit. And God is pointing out the faithfulness of Job. And Job essentially says, Oh, uh, the devil says, Yeah, of course, Job would say that he loves you, God. I mean, he's the richest man in the region. Good. He's got all these kids, these servants. He's got all this wealth and these flocks. Say he loves you. Who wouldn't? Conditional faith. And God said, do you think that's what it is? Well, you just do what you want to and see what happens to his faith. And he says, essentially, oh, really? I can do what I want to? He says, well, you can't take his life. But otherwise, pretty much do what you want to with him. You can't harm him But you can do what you want to with everything around him. And in one day, the devil kills every one of his children, all of his servants, except the three who are going to come back and report the calamity, and every one of his flocks. Every animal in his flocks. His wealth is taken from him, his family is taken from him, and his servants are taken away. And still, Job holds on to his faith and his integrity. The devil hates that. And God, in a righteous way, is kind of going, yeah, you see, Job, he still loves me. He's still faithful. This is what real faith looks like. That's one of my kids. And the devil says, oh, yeah. Well, if you take the covering off of his own health, you see, you only let me touch the people around him. He doesn't really care about anybody else. He only cares about himself. Take the covering off of his body and let me harm him and he'll curse you to your face, God. And God says, all right, you want to try that? I'll take the covering off of his body. Now, you can't take his life, but you can affect his health. And immediately, Satan strikes him with an illness that he is covered with huge boils, big oozing sores that he can get no relief from, terrible pain in his body day and night. His own wife looks at him and goes, what is the deal? Why don't you just give up, curse God and die, man? Thanks, honey. I was looking for some encouragement today. And he won't. He will not let go of his faith or his integrity. Now, that's what a life looks like when the covering has been removed. We've all been through some trials. We've all lived with some pain. Some of you right now are living with pain. And we may feel like, boy, God has just abandoned me. I'm pretty sure he hasn't abandoned anybody. He hadn't abandoned Job, but we get one little glimpse of what life would look like if the covering of God is removed. In a moment of time, all the kids are dead. I mean, this is a picture of just how evil Satan is. Kill kill and destroy, kill and destroy, kill and destroy, do it today. The fact that you are alive, that people that you love and care about are alive today and have any measure of health or provision is a reminder that the covering of God is in place. But the covering of God is not by design an impenetrable shield that keeps you protected from every difficulty that life could ever bring your way. It's not some guarantee that you'll never get sick or you'll never hurt or your family will never suffer. It is the comfort of knowing that the devil who is wicked beyond our wildest imagination is not given free reign to terrorize us. Praise God for that. There is a covering, but there are trials. And Peter said... You can rejoice. You can rejoice that there is protection, but you can also rejoice even in your trials. How on earth is that, Peter? Because some of our trials are not the kind that we just want to share on Sunday morning and go, I've got a praise report. You know how we love to just share a little praise report where we just had some great victory over something that the truth of the matter is. It was never that big of a deal in the first place. I'm sorry if I sound like a skeptic, but we've all heard those. I'm talking about the kind of stuff that you've never shared in group because the pain is so deep and it's tied to so much shame and uncertainty that you don't want to stand up and raise your hand on a Sunday morning and talk about it. You know, Are you with me yet? You know the kind of pain I'm talking about. And Peter says you can rejoice in those because in those God is working something incredibly important, but important and in the middle of it he gives an inexpressible joy to you. How does that work? Let's see if we can make some sense out of that. How does God use trials for good? Well, two things that Peter points to. And the first one is is that he just says, first of all, trials reveal your faith. In verse 7, he says, these trials will show that your faith is genuine. I didn't put this in your outline, but it's worth writing down or repeating A faith that has been tested is a faith that can be trusted. I want you to look at your neighbor and just tell them that. A faith that's been tested is a faith that can be trusted. The corollary to that is, if your faith hasn't ever been tested, it can't take you very far, you can't trust it very far. I mean, a concept that goes with that is the realization that God only greatly uses people who've been greatly hurt in life. It just goes with that. You can't be greatly used by God if you've never suffered greatly in life. Do you understand that? Because you don't have a strong, sturdy faith. The only way to have that kind of faith is you have to have gone through trials that proved your faith to be genuine and deepened your faith. Job had a, had a real faith when the story ends. He had a much deeper faith when the story concludes. Part of his story of faith was not only going through great suffering, but it was having all of his friends turn on him and say, whew, man, you must have done something really bad. I mean, God wouldn't let all this happen to somebody unless there was a good reason for it. What have you done? Go ahead and tell us your sins, brother. We would love to let you confess to us. And he said, I haven't done anything to deserve this. He was going through a testing that would prove his faith genuine. Peter had to go through this. It's what changed him. I mean, he was so confident. He was so sure of what he was doing for three and a half years as he walked with Jesus. He's ready to lead the pack and on the night when Jesus is trying to communicate to them what was about to happen he's going to be murdered in less than 24 hours in the span of that evening he's going to be arrested and begun to be tortured all night long and he's trying to help his closest friends understand and he's saying understand they're about to take me the shepherd from you they're going to do all these things to me and when they strike the shepherd the sheep are going to run I need for you guys to understand what you're about to go through and you're you're all going to be at the place you're going to abandon me for a season it's going to be too painful and risky for you to stay with me and you will run away and peter's going jesus come on we need to talk you're going with this but we need a positive message let's change the tone of this we need a little little more encouragement jesus now listen i want to just clarify this with you these other 11 schmucks they may abandon you but i'm the real deal jesus I will never abandon you. And Peter looks at him. No, Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, I need for you to understand. Before the sun comes up tomorrow and the rooster crows, you're going to die. Then I three times you even know who I am. What do you mean? Jesus, I am the only one you can count on. You are my amigo. You're my bestie. I will always hang with you. And Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to shift you like wheat. But I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. There is so much power and emotion in that. Simon, I know this is going to be hard for you. I know this is going to be unspeakably painful for you. And I know that in the, in the critical moment, you're going to screw up. You're not going to say the right thing. You're not going to do the right thing. And I just want you to know, I've been praying for you, and I will be praying for you. And after you have blown it, because you're going to, just like we've all blown it, He says, I'm just praying you all the way through. And after you've come through that, and you've repented, and you've realized how badly you've blown it, you come back. I've still got a job for you. And when Jesus had risen from the dead, Peter's the one that he sought out. And he reinstated him and said, Peter, do you still love me? Do you really love me? Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. You're the one I'm counting on. And this same guy who denied Over and over that he even knew Jesus and cursed and swore, I don't know the man. The man who is cowering, hiding behind locked doors in the darkness on resurrection Sunday night. After suffering through these painful trials, becomes the man who speaks with reckless abandon and boldness on the day of Pentecost. This Jesus whom you crucified, God has declared to be Lord and King. He has been raised from the dead, and I'm willing to lay my life on the line to say that I'm a follower of his. Three and a half decades later, suffering through pain and difficulty, ultimately it's going to cost him his life. And he has no regrets. He's been transformed by God through his suffering. Suffering will prove your faith genuine. And trials and suffering will strengthen your faith and draw you closer to God. Or they'll expose your false faith. Trials will do one or the other, won't they? I've got a very good friend. known him for years. And he has an incredible faith. And he has sought to pass his faith onto his kids. And done a wonderful job with that. He has a bunch of kids. His oldest daughter is old enough that a couple of years ago, he took her with him on one of his mission trips to Cambodia. He does not go on the touristy mission trips. He goes to the places that we don't want to go. And ministers to people that are just broken at levels that are heartbreaking to see. And he took his daughter, who was 17 or 18 at the time, into that environment to let her be with him and take part in ministering to these hurting poor people. And um, one of the situations that they encountered, a family living in poverty, and they had an infant child who was critically ill... It was so obvious. I don't remember what the illness was. But the mother holding this dying child came up to my friend's daughter and said, Please, please, would you pray for my baby? Help my baby. Pray for my baby. And so his daughter, you know, kind of wide eyed, took the baby and held it and just prayed over it. And, and of all the people they ministered to, her heart really connected with this family and this baby. And she prayed and mustered all the faith that she could, laying hands on this child and praying for it. And when they had to move on, they gave the baby back. And when they came back some days later, they came upon the Cambodian burial ceremony. It wasn't a burial. It was actually a burning of the body. And they came up and realized the baby's dead. And they are dealing with the baby's remains. And it absolutely rocked her world. And they came home, and some months have passed, and in the passing months, she has walked away from the church. The daughter has said, I just don't know that I can believe in that God. I I've just, I don't want anything to do with church. Don't talk to me about church. Don't talk to me about God. And as my friend is telling me about this, over, my heart's hurting for him, and what he's going through with his daughter. And a big smile breaks out on his face as he's telling me this. And he said, It's such a beautiful thing that's happening in my daughter's life. And I'm thinking, so is there a rest of the story you had not told me yet? He's like, no, that's, that's where we are right now. But he said, here's the beautiful thing that's happening. She had a false faith. She didn't have a personal faith in God yet. And God is giving her the opportunity to realize and see that she didn't have a real faith yet. And he's letting her experience some real pain. Some real life stuff. So that coming out of that, coming out of this season where she's walking away and she's saying all the wrong stuff and she's getting it wrong. But she's going to have to pass through that trial in order to find and embrace a real faith. It's not just an inherited faith. You see, God's using pain and trials in her life to bring her to a place of real faith. I don't have a pretty bow to put on that story just yet. To my knowledge, she hasn't yet embraced that faith. Oh, I believe she will. But it's a picture of of what trials will do. Oh, they'll expose a false faith. Or they will strengthen and deepen a real faith. That sounds pretty tidy to say on a Sunday morning. It feels awful to go through a lot of times. I don't know what trial... You've had to go through. I know what my biggest one was, or what my biggest set of trials were. I know the reality of feeling that balance of protection and terrible trials. I've tried to be open without glorifying the junk, but tried to be open with you know some of the worst pains that I've been through in my life. And I, no mystery to you that you know the darkest, most painful season of my life. Revolved around a failing marriage, divorce, losing a job, being cut off from a ministry and friends. but if you've ever been through a really lengthy, painful, miserable experience in life, a really lengthy, dark trial, it's weird how it seems like there will be one moment of that whole long experience where it all just crystallizes, and it's like you just you remember that one moment above everything else, like this was when it was at its worst, and I remember that moment. For me, it was at the place where marriage had disintegrated and though divorce wasn't final, it it was over. I was still pastoring a church that, honestly, the process of being let go from. I didn't fully understand it, but I was beginning to see the reality that most of the people that I had called my closest friends were in the process of completely cutting me out of their lives. I didn't know just yet how painful that part would be. All of those things were scary and painful, and then you add to that just the realization that not only is my ministry here about to be cut off, but so is income and any you know plan for how that all works out. But the part that made it the most painful that for me just crystallizes that whole experience is the one thing that I was still holding on to was my relationships with my kids. And still trying to be a good dad and have a healthy relationship there. One of my daughters was still at home. And we had been through a lot of difficult stuff together already. A lot of really painful parenting through the teen years kind of stuff. But I will never, as long as I live, forget the day when things spun out of control. In that moment, I didn't know why on this particular day. It was in her senior year. And we got up one morning And she announced that she wasn't going to school anymore. And you can't make me and you can't do anything about it. And I was just trying to say, look, you you know, you're this close to the finish. Come on, let's just just get you ready and go to school. And it just crazy spiraled out of control that morning. And I'm trying to calm it down. And it, it just went to a really bad place really fast. And I won't paint the full picture of that for you. But the part that just is frozen in time for me is when she spoke out of all of her pain, she didn't speak, she's screaming, and she began to scream at me, you're not my father. You're a sperm donor, but you're not my father. Now, I'm not saying that in any way to vilify my daughter. Looking back, I understand she was horribly hurt by a lot of things going on in her life and going on around her, and hurt people hurt people. And she was doing what hurt people do. I remember just hitting the wall that morning and realizing I don't have control of anything. I don't have control of a marriage that is lost. I don't have control of a career or a ministry or an income or even a relationship with my kids. I do not have control of anything. and I I, I always think I know what to do. I'm kind of like Peter. I always think I've got some kind of answer. I've got something to do. I just remember that morning hitting the wall. I had no idea what to do next. I, I, I couldn't come up with anything. I couldn't figure out how to move into the next moment. I, I had one friend I could think of to call in that moment, and I called him, and I just, I just need you to come over here. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to, how to get past the next five minutes. And for those of you who would love a nice, neat rest of the story. I'll be honest, the next part of the tape is blank for me. I remember he came, and I can't tell you anything that happened for the next several hours other than somehow we got through the next part of the morning, survived that, and at whatever point I got alone that day or that night, the part that I do remember so vividly is finally getting alone in my room. All of the chaos and stuff that was out of control, Still right there before me, and the thing that stands out most vividly to me is what Peter writes about. An inexpressible joy and peace settled in over my life. Nothing had changed. My marriage was still going down the drain. My job down the drain. My finances completely uncertain, and nothing had changed in my relationship with my daughter. And yet, I just remember feeling above everything else this indescribable sense of just never feeling so loved by God as I did in that moment. I didn't feel like I was getting anything in my life right. And every direction I looked was filled with pain. Except when I looked to God... And I couldn't hear him saying anything. I tried, I couldn't. And in something beyond words, I felt an overwhelming sense that God just loved me. And a peace swept over my life that did not match my circumstances. Everything was chaos, it was not going to work out neatly. And I'm reminded of the words of Jesus. Peter, Peter, Satan has demanded the opportunity to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. And I will continue to pray for you. And in your hour of need, I'll be praying for you and loving you. And when you've blown it, I'll still be loving you and praying for you. And when you've come through it, Oh, I've got a job for you, Peter. I'll restore you. I'll use you. That same Peter said, when you go through your trials, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to tell you that the protection of God's going to keep you from going through them. They're going to hurt. You're going to feel like you're in hell on earth. And in the middle of that, if you'll just hold on to the promise of God and believe in the love of God, an inexpressible joy will... On you. It doesn't make sense. It's the realization that the love of God is real, not because you've been good and you deserve it, and it's not meaning that suddenly everything's fixed, but you can make it. Because He loves you, and He's praying for you, and He's holding on to you. Job's story doesn't end with his friends abandoning him when you get to the final two chapters of the story you find that after a season of suffering God sends the enemy packing and he gives Job as many kids as he ever had before he gives Job twice the wealth he's ever had before it's a story with an incredible ending everybody's story doesn't end the same but it is a good reminder that weeping may remain for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Trials come for a season. I wouldn't pretend that every pain's been lifted in my life. Some of them are still there to be dealt with today. But here, seven years later, it's a joy to have a, a serve and feel so thrilled to be a part of every day and every week I have a wife who loves me thank you and this week the same daughter who seven years ago out of pain said you are not my father contacted me as she often does and said can we have lunch we had lunch And this week, she said, Dad, is there any way we could spend more time together? Could we just have a time? She said, can we just have a time every month that we do more than just lunch, that we just have time together? I want to be with you. If you're really hurting today, you are not here by accident. And I don't have a happy message to go, oh, if you'll pray this prayer, if you'll walk down the aisle, it'll all just be fixed. It won't. But I've got good news for you. God does love you. And there's an inexpressible joy and peace reserved for you that you only feel at its deepest level in your darkest trials. And Jesus wants to pour that on us today. Would you just open your heart to? So we turn to him together in prayer right now. Jesus, you are good and true. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your protection. Thank you for your love. God, I know that there are people... In the room and who are watching and listening online, for whom the concept of trials and pain are an all too real present reality today. Please help them. Please give them what they need right now. We believe you for healing, we believe you to restore and to repair what's broken. But we also trust you to bring peace and joy until those things happen and we ask you for that today if today you're in a place of pain or difficulty would you just be honest with God about that it may be that you haven't felt the nearness of God in your life in a while be honest and tell him what you need Ask Him for what you need. But in the asking, would you just also ask Him that right now, that you help Him, that that He help you to, to just feel and know His love and His nearness and peace in your life. God, thank You for Your goodness. Thank You for meeting us here. We open ourselves up to You and pray that You would help us In our times of pain and need today. And we pray this Jesus in your name. Amen.